Well, if you have a Bible, I would uh, invite you to turn in your Bible to the book of 1 Thessalonians. Our, uh, our pattern is to just simply work our way through various portions of Scripture. Uh, we, we do what's called expository preaching in this church. We, we like to take the Bible just one verse at a time, work our way through it. Um, we don't typically preach in a topical manner. We just simply open up God's Word and, and work our way through it and, and learn what the Lord has for us in that way. Uh, Gabe has been uh, working through the book of Matthew uh, in our morning services for uh, several months, a couple of years now, I believe, and then also working through the, the book of First uh, Kings in our evening services. And then on the uh, rare occasion that I fill in for Gabe over the past couple of years, I've been working our way through the book of First Thessalonians. And I confess it can be a bit of a challenge. Uh, it's been, I think, three months since we were last here. Um, so when we're not in the same passage week in and week out, it's a little hard to keep that continuity. Um, so uh, what I would like to do is um, begin by, just, just to help set the context here, I want to read the entire chapter, uh, first chapter of 1 Thessalonians, but we're going to uh, move on into chapter 2 this morning. Uh, we're going to concentrate our attention on verses 1 through 7, but I want to read beginning in chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to read all the way down through chapter 2, verse 8. I know that's a bigger chunk of, of Scripture, but I want to be able to read the whole passage so we can see the context and, and see where we're going to begin this morning. So if you would follow along with me, beginning in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and in Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness." Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. 
So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Let's pause now and just pray and ask the Lord's help as we consider this passage. Oh God, we give thanks for your word. We give thanks for how it instructs us, how it teaches us about yourself, and how it teaches us about how we are to live in light of all that you have done for us. Oh Lord, I ask for your help now. I need your help. I pray that by your spirit, you would be helping me to be clear. Help us together to be able to understand what it is you would have for us this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you'll recall, if you were with us back uh, in December, when we were wrapping up chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, uh, we were just considering that this, this really is just a, a, a simple, endearing letter written by a pastor to a church that he ministered to. And he was writing to encourage these people. Um, he was writing to commend them for the way that they had um, turned from their sin and had chosen to, to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we considered some of the features of, of this, this church. This, it was really just a, a local assembly just like this. Um, and, and there were some remarkable um, things that were evident in this church. We noted, first of all, that it was a praying church. Uh, it was a preaching church. And it was a, a church that, that practiced what they preached. But we also noted their, their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope. We, we noted the supernatural work of our sovereign God in saving them. We saw that the gospel came to them in word and in power and in the Holy Spirit. It came with full conviction. And it produced in the people of that church proof of saving faith, of saving faith. It was evidenced by the joy in their lives. It was evidenced by the pattern of discipleship as they followed the model set forth by their leaders. We saw their eagerness to hear the word in spite of much affliction. And we saw their powerful witness as they became an example to other believers and the word sounded forth from them. And we considered how truly extraordinary it was that they had turned from pagan idols to serve the living and true God. And we, we learned from this church that their anticipation of Christ's return was, was rooted in the reality of his resurrection and that Christ's finished work on the cross saves us not only from our own sin, but from the wrath of God that is due us as a penalty for our sin. Essentially, we learned God is saving us from himself. So after giving thanks for the Thessalonians in chapter 1 and recounting all that the Lord had done for them in saving them, we see a shift in thought here in chapter 2. Paul now goes on the defense. He's, he's defending his ministry. And, and why is that so? Why does Paul need to go on the defense? Well, let's, uh, let's read it again, beginning in verse chapter, or chapter 2, verse 1. We read, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. We never came to you with words of flattery, as you know, or with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, 
whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we are gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So we're not really sure why, why Paul felt the need to defend himself here. It's possible that he was under attack by some in the Thessalonian church, or perhaps he was just simply anticipating that attacks may come based on the criticism that he had faced in other places where he had ministered. Regardless, after reminding the Thessalonians of all that the Lord had done for them in chapter 1, Paul goes on to reinforce the integrity of his ministry by repeatedly telling them the things that they know to be true about him. Did you pick up on that? There's a phrase that's repeated several times in this passage. It's, for you know. Paul repeats this phrase four times in chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. But variations of this phrase appear at least a dozen times in the entire epistle. Back in chapter 1, verse 5, we read this. Paul says, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, You yourselves know that our coming to you is not in vain. Chapter 2, verse 2, he says, You know we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Verse 5, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know. Verse 9, he says, For you remember, in other words, you know, recall to your mind, you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. Verse 10, he says, you are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. You are witnesses. In order to be a witness, you need to testify to what you know. Verse 11, he says, for you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. And then in chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, he says, for you yourselves know that we were destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. He goes on in chapter 4, verse 2, he says, For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 9, he says, For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. When you're taught something, it follows that you then know it. And chapter 5 verse 2 he says for you yourselves are fully aware you you know that the day of the lord will come like a thief in the night so essentially paul is saying come on guys you know you know me and and you know what i've taught you so any criticism that's coming against me you, you know who i am you know my character you know how i acted among you 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 know what i taught you So Paul is reminding them that they really know him. They know what he's like. They know what kind of man he is. But uh, there's another phrase I really want us to focus our attention on this morning. And it's this phrase that begins with the word for, and then it concludes with another preposition, but. For, but. We see this this combination three times in chapter 2. For, and then but. And when Paul introduces the word for, he's, he's denying the charge that has been brought against him. And when he says the word but, he then goes on to present his defense. So we see this first in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. He says, for 
you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain. Then he goes on in verse 2 to say, But though we had already suffered him and shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we have boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in, much con- in the midst of much conflict. For, but. So if you're taking notes and try to have some clever alliteration this morning, first point would be, Paul did not come using useless discourse, but bold declaration. Not useless discourse, but bold declaration. Beginning in verse 1 where he says, For you yourselves know, brothers. When Paul says for, he's calling to their remembrance his impeccable character amongst them. He reminds them that his coming had not been in vain. He's telling them, look at what the Lord has done amongst you. All the things that have been recounted in chapter 1, their work of faith, their labor of love, their steadfastness of hope, the joy that they experience in the Holy Spirit, their witness throughout the whole region, all of these things, Paul is saying, for you know, you know that our coming to you was not in vain. The charge that, that Paul's ministry amongst them was, was worthless could be denied because the evidence was there. These people's lives had been changed because of what Paul had, had taught them, what he had preached to them. There's no way that anybody could say that his coming to them had been in vain because the Lord had done a remarkable work amongst them. But Paul goes on after denying the charge to, to give his defense, and he says, but. He says, but in verse 2. Uh, though, we had been, though we had suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So what was the conflict that Paul had experienced? Well, you remember back in Acts chapter 16, when Paul and his companions had gone through the city of Philippi, they experienced much conflict in that city. There was a, a slave girl that had been possessed by a demon, and Paul, um, under the power of the Holy Spirit, was able to cast out that demon. But uh, this slave girl brought uh, much profit to her owners, and they were upset because their, their source of income essentially now had dried up. And so Paul was falsely accused. He was denied due process as a Roman citizen. He was illegally punished. He was dragged into the marketplace. He was beaten with rods. He was thrown into a prison, and his feet was, were fastened in stocks. He certainly experienced much conflict in the city of Philippi. But then what did he do after he was released from prison? He and his companions went on to the city of Thessalonica. And it was there, we read in Acts chapter 17, that jealous Jews took wicked men. They formed a mob. They set the city into an uproar. They attacked the house of Jason. Jason was uh, his host in the city. They forced Jason to post a bond. And then Paul and Silas were sent away secretly by night to the next city, to Berea. So in spite of all the conflict that Paul endured in ministering to the people, both in Philippi and in Thessalonica, he was bold. He was bold to continue to preach the gospel. Boldness was a characteristic of of Paul's preaching. We we know that from the book of Acts in several places. Acts chapter 9, verse 27 says at Damascus, he preached boldly in the name of Jesus. In Acts chapter 13, verse 46 
Speaking to the Jews that opposed him, we read that Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying that it was necessary that the word of God be first spoken to them, since it was thrust aside and they needed to judge themselves unworthy of eternal life. Acts chapter 14, verse 3, in the synagogue at Iconium, we read this, So they remained a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace. So Paul was a bold preacher. We know that to be true of him. However, it did not necessarily come easily for Paul. We read in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 18 to 20, that Paul asked the people in the church at Ephesus to pray for him. We read, To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And so though, though we often think of Paul as being a bold and courageous and perhaps maybe even a bombastic preacher, that was not always the case. He needed the Lord's help to declare the gospel boldly as he should. And he coveted the prayers of the people that he served to that end. So Paul's denial of the charge against him and his defense, uh, we see that his ministry bore much fruit in the lies to those whom he ministered. And he paid a dear price in order to minister to them, being slandered, beaten, and imprisoned. But we see that his preaching was characterized, his ministry was characterized by bold preaching that did not necessarily originate in him, but was a result of the Spirit's work in him and the prayers of the saints that he served. His efforts were not futile. He saw much results thanks to the courage that the Lord gave to him in spite of great opposition. Well, next we see in verse 2 that Paul's ministry was not in distortion, indecency, or deceit, but rather it was an approval by God with an aim to please him. I know that's a long point. I'll say it again. His efforts were not in distortion, indecency, or deceit, but an approval by God with an aim to please him. Paul's denial is first introduced by the word for in verse 3. He says, for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. His appeal did not spring from error. Paul did not distort the truth. The gospel that he preached was accurate and true. Paul, in his defense before Governor Festus and King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, says this. He says, I am not out of my mind. I am speaking true and rational words. For the king, speaking to King Agrippa, the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. And Paul goes on to challenge the king, saying, Do you believe in the prophets? I know that you believe. So Paul's appeal was based upon the undeniable fulfillment of prophecy that related to the coming of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. The words that he spoke were true. But also there was no hint of indecency or impurity in his message. Paul reiterates this in chapter 4, verse 7, where he says, God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Unlike the false teachers that Jude refers to in his epistle, 
who have crept in unnoticed and who pervert the grace of our God with sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Paul was above reproach. Any charge of indecency or immorality would not stick to him. And thirdly, he says, there's no attempt to deceive. Again, not like the false teachers that Peter speaks of in 2 Peter chapter 2, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Many follow their sensuality. Because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. In their greed, they will exploit with false words. Peter goes on in verse 18 to say, For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. No one could claim that Paul was like those cunning false teachers. Like the Lord Jesus, there was no deceit found in his mouth, but he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Though many tried to discredit Paul's ministry, it could not be denied that he spoke the truth, he lived a morally upright life, and he did not use cunning techniques to try to lead people astray. Contrast that even today to to some we may see, ministering, preaching. Um, There are many we, we can attest that are deceitful. They live immoral lives. They don't speak the truth. May all ministers of the gospel be honest, um, convey the truth, live lives of holiness, and not use deceptive tactics to, to lead people astray. So Paul has already uh, denied the charges. He now goes on to verse 4 to present his defense. He says, but, beginning of verse 4, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, So we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Paul had been entrusted with the gospel. He had been personally approved for ordination by God. We know this from Acts chapter 9, when the Lord tells Ananias to go, for he, that being Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. And Paul himself in Acts chapter 22 recounts that Ananias had told him that he would be a witness for him, that being Jesus Christ, to everyone of what you had seen and heard. In Acts chapter 26, Paul tells about how Jesus told him to rise, stand upon his feet. For Jesus had appeared to him for this purpose, to appoint for him as a servant and witness to the things in which he had seen, to those things which appeared to him. Paul was not self-appointed. He was set apart for gospel ministry by Christ himself. And we should be wary of those who advance themselves. Sure, a man may may sense the call of God upon his heart to to serve as a a minister, as a pastor. But those who promote themselves, who perhaps are are on their own road to to, um, enter into the ministry, we, we we should be cautious about that. Uh, A man needs to be first tested and approved um, by other godly men. That is uh, certainly the pattern uh, in church history that we see laid forth. Um, The godly men need to be the ones attesting and approving and ordaining those who would go into the ministry. 
And certainly uh, that was, that was the, the case with Paul. He was, he was ordained by Jesus Christ himself. Paul goes on to say, We speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. Paul was not a man pleaser. And Peter conveys this same thought in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, when he says, We ought to obey God rather than men. Paul could honestly attest that he was not out looking for approval or accolades from men, but he was simply relaying the message that the Lord had entrusted to him. And it was God alone that tested his heart. And finally, in Paul's denial of the charges and his defense of his ministry, we see point three, that he did it not for greed or for glory, but in gentleness. So his denial of the charge, we see first of all in verse five, beginning with the word for, for we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Paul never used words of flattery. He was not a smooth-talking salesman. He wasn't just saying what their itching ears wanted to hear. We know that from 2 Timothy chapter 4. Where do we see that today? As we see uh, counterfeit pastors, ministers, using words of flattery to just get people in the doors. That was not what Paul did. He wasn't just trying to, to lure people in. He didn't come with a pretext for greed. The King James Version says it calls it a cloak of righteousness. In other words, he didn't just put on a mask to cover up greed. He wasn't in it for the money. He wasn't a peddler or a huckster. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says, For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak Christ. And Paul calls on God as the ultimate witness. God knows everything. We know that, right, from Psalm chapter 139. And we know that God cannot lie. We know that from Titus 1, verse 2. Paul calls upon him as witness. So if Paul was not speaking with flattering words, what, what was it he was preaching? What was the message that he preached to the Thessalonians? So if we can go on a little bit of a rabbit trail here, if you take your Bibles, turn back to Acts chapter 17. We've, we've been back here a couple of times as we've been working our way through verse Thessalonians. We see the account of the founding of the church in Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17. Beginning of verse 2, it says, Paul went in as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. So what is the message that Paul preached? It's really pretty simple. He just opened up the word of God and he explained it to him. Kind of like our Lord Jesus, who on the road to Emmaus, as he walked along with two of his followers, Luke chapter 24, 
We read that he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Later on, Jesus meeting with his disciples in Luke 24, verse 44, said this, Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. So we don't really know what Jesus said to his disciples. We don't really know what scriptures he took them to, to explain all those things about himself. Same with Paul. We really don't know where Paul went in the scriptures to explain to the, to the people in Thessalonica all the, the things that were true about Jesus. But we can assume that his discourse included parts of the entire Old Testament. We can be certain that he, he drew from the law of Moses. He may have started in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, which speaks of the Messiah's suffering at the hands of the devil, but the, ulti- the devil's ultimate demise. It says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise, bruise his heel. Paul may have referenced Numbers chapter 21, verses 6 through 9, which which Jesus referred to in John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, when he said, Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. He could have gone to Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, to explain the significance of an atoning sacrifice. We read there that for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. He likely would have gone to the Psalms. There are several messianic references in the Psalms, references to the coming Christ and his suffering and his resurrection. We read about his suffering, about the crucifixion in Psalm 22, verse 1, where we read, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? quoted by Jesus himself on the cross. Psalm 69, 21, they also gave me gall for my food and for my thirst. They gave me vinegar to drink. We know that to be true of Christ on the cross. Psalm 22, verses 14 to 15, I am poured out like water and all my joints are out of, all my bones are out of joint. Again, we know that to be true of Christ. All his bones are out of joint, yet not one of them was broken. And Psalm 16, 10, Referring to the resurrection, for you will not abandon my soul to shale or let your Holy One see corruption. Christ's body never saw corruption. It never decayed because he rose again on the third day. He likely drew from the prophets, Zechariah 12.10, which speaks of him whom they have pierced. And certainly Isaiah chapters 52 and 53, where we read that his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. And surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. So Paul's effective preaching, gospel preaching, opened up the scriptures and helped the people to see the reality of who Christ is. He helped them to see their need for a savior. 
from the opening pages of Scripture, we can see that we have a problem. Mankind is in utter rebellion against their Creator. And that has caused there to be a great chasm separating man from God. See, God is a perfect and a righteous God. And in His holiness, He cannot stand to look upon sin. And in His justice, God demands that a penalty be paid for sin. And we see a representation of that in the Old Testament sacrificial system where the shed blood of an unblemished lamb, bull, or goat was offered up on an altar to cover the sins of the people. But the blood of animals was insufficient to deal with our sin problem forever. They were simply a foreshadowing of the ultimate sacrifice that God would send in our place. God the Father sent his perfect Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life that no man could live and to die a brutal death like had never been endured before all to take the penalty that we deserve to pay for our sin debt. But the glory of the gospel is this, it's the resurrection, which proves that the sacrifice was complete and acceptable and that Jesus had conquered sin and death once and for all. And we now await his return to establish his kingdom on earth and to finally vanquish sin and death forever. That's the gospel that Paul preached. He didn't use slick tactics, didn't use smoke and mirrors to convey it. He simply just stood up, he opened up the scriptures, he explained it to them, and he boldly proclaimed that Jesus is Lord and King. Back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 6, we read that, Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Paul did not seek glory from people, either from the Thessalonians or from others. He could have asserted his apostleship. It's interesting to note that this is the first mention of his apostleship in this epistle. Paul opens most of his epistles by asserting his apostleship, except in Philippians, Philemon, and and the, the two books of the Thessalonians. But he doesn't open this letter asserting that he was an apostle. Why do you suppose that's so? Well, perhaps it's because of the close relationship he had with these people. There was no need for rebuke uh, like there was with the Galatians or the Corinthians. Why was it that he decides to bring it up here, though? Why does he now bring up the fact that he was an apostle? Well, maybe he needed to remind them that he could have asserted his authority, but he didn't. He could have flaunted his authority as an apostle, but instead, in his defense... We read in verse 7, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Paul was gentle with them, just like a mother is with her children, just like Christ is with his bride, the church, which he treats um, with precious love. He wasn't harsh. He didn't lord over them. He was firm, perhaps, when he needed to be, but he gently rebuked, He exhorted, he taught from the scriptures with a mind to see the Thessalonians grow in their love and knowledge of God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So in the way of application this morning, I want to suggest to you that it is entirely appropriate that we do examine those that minister amongst us, just like Paul was being examined as a minister to the Thessalonian church. 
And there's several questions that we can ask in light of what we've learned from this passage. First of all, as we consider those who minister amongst us, do we know them? Do we really know them? Paul had to remind the Thessalonians that they knew him. They knew him well. He'd spent a lot of time with them. He had invested in them. He had built into their lives. And as time allows, and maybe weeks ahead as we go on further in this uh, epistle, we'll, we'll learn more about that, about this, this sweet relationship that Paul shared with the, the church in Thessalonica. But uh, do we really know those who minister amongst us? We need to get to know them. They need to get to know us. It, it is a two-way street. And in getting to know them, we can, we can test and approve whether they are true ministers of the gospel. We also can ask, is there clear evidence of their work amongst us? Has their coming to us been in vain? Or can we see growth in the lives of those that have been ministered to? As we look around this room, can we, can we truly attest that there's been growth amongst us? As we consider how Gabe has, has ministered to us week in and week out, can we, can we say, wow, yeah, there, there has been growth. We, uh, we have been changed by God's grace. Is there bold declaration of gospel truth in spite of various trials and difficulties? Do those who minister amongst us boldly preach the gospel, even though conflict may come, even though maybe opposition may come? Is there error in their teaching? Do we find it not to be true? Is there evidence of immorality in their lives? Do they use deceptive tactics? Are they self-promoting? Or is there clear evidence that the man has been called by God and ordained by other godly men? Is he a salesman? Does he just butter up the congregation with words of flattery? Or does he simply open up the word of God and explain it to us? Are they in it for the money, for glory, for fame? Do they make unattainable demands upon the people that they shepherd? Or are they gentle? To that end, may we pray that God may raise up more faithful pastors, shepherds, and ministers of the gospel to nourish his sheep in this dry and parched land. Would you pray with me? Oh God, we just thank you for the truth of your word. We're thankful for the um, simple truths that are conveyed in it. God, I am just a a man, uh, nothing in me. Um, that could convey this truth, but only you by your Spirit. Thankful for what we have learned this morning about a true minister of the gospel, the character of a faithful minister. We pray for those that minister amongst us. We pray especially for Gabe. We're so thankful for his character, for how he leads us, um, for how he teaches us. We pray that you would continue to protect him, uh, keep him from immorality, from sin, and for all those others that would minister amongst us as well. We ask all these things for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.